Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. Please open your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 1. Mark 1. And I'm going to read verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll discuss this verse in all of Mark. God, we thank you for this gospel that was recorded by Mark We thank you that you inspired him to write about your son, Jesus, so that we would see that he is your son, and so that we would believe, and so that we would worship him and follow him. God, we pray that your spirit would lead us this evening. And as we think about the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, that we would see your glory, that we would see Jesus clearly. Please guide us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, we're starting a new series in the book of Mark, in the gospel of Mark. And today... It's, it's mostly going to be an overview of the book of Mark. I'm, we're, we're dealing, one could say that we're dealing with verse one, but uh, yeah, it's, it's ultimately an overview of the whole book. And as you can see on the screen, we named our series Seeing Jesus Clearly. And the reason why this series is called Seeing Jesus Clearly is because I believe that what Mark is trying to do, he he wants his readers to be able to focus on Jesus and see him as, or see him for who he is. So let's do a quick quick exercise. Uh, And I especially want the kids to do this. Ready, children? All right, so I want you to lift your finger, put it in front of you, like so, and then uh, cross your eyes and tell me how many fingers you see, like this. Five. Well, see, but I, but I asked you to do one finger. How many do you see? Two. What happens when you focus? How many do you see? One. One. Okay, so basically, Mark is telling us that Jesus is the Son of God, and that means two things, that he is the son of man or, and that he is the servant of God. And basically what, we, what he wants us to see in Mark is that the son of man, the one that would receive the kingdom from God and bring it, the one who would usher the kingdom of God in is the same one who will suffer for the sins of the world. And as we're going to see in the book of Mark, people are often confused. In fact, uh, one of the names that I thought for this series probably was something about, you know, being confused. But I thought, you know what? 
That's not what we're aiming for. We're aiming for clarity. But in the book of Mark, people, including the disciples, people are often confused. In fact, the book ends with people afraid and confused and not really knowing what to do. And the first half of the book also ends in confusion. And I believe that the key here is that Mark is trying to show us that even though all of these people were confused about who Jesus was, hopefully by the end of the book, all of us would be amazed. And yes, maybe even a little bit confused, but that we would have more clarity as to who Jesus is, as to what he means by saying that Jesus is the Son of God. Now think about it. Mark begins his gospel by saying, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the only thing that Mark states for himself. Everything else is just story. This is the only editorial note that Mark makes saying, Jesus, the Son of God. And so we could just take his word, right? We could, we could uh, read verse one and say, okay, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We're done. That's great. But that's not the point. The gospel of Mark is a journey showing us what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. And the goal is that by the end of the book, along with the Roman soldier, all of us would be able to say, truly, this is the Son of God, right? Mark is telling us this is the Son of God, but through the whole gospel, ideally, all of us, as we see the power, the authority of Jesus, the, the character of Jesus, who he is, all of us would acknowledge and say, truly, this is the Son of God. So Mark is, um, Mark is like a sandwich. What do I mean by that? Well, Mark is divided into two large chunks, two large sections, and then there is a piece of meat in the middle. Not to say that everything else that is not in the middle is not meat, is not helpful to us. It's, it's incredibly rich. But you have two very clear halves in the book of Mark. And then right in the middle in chapter 8, you have a very important, uh, actually you have very important events that happen that actually help us uh, uh, interpret the book of Mark. And so what is happening in the first half of Mark is that Mark is showing us Jesus' power, Jesus' authority, Jesus' character, and he is performing miracles. He is declaring that he's bringing the kingdom of God. He is preaching for, for people to repent. Even when he is preaching, people recognize that he has authority. People say he actually has authority, not like the scribes or the other people, but he actually has authority. And so Mark is showing us the authority of Jesus in every sphere of life. He has authority over God's word. He has authority over diseases. He is able to heal many people. He has authority over demons and spiritual powers. He delivers many, uh, many people from demonic oppression. He has authority over the elements and creation. He stops the storm and, and he tells the wind to stop. He has authority over the, the, the laws of, of nature. He has authority over everything. And that's what Mark is showing. Yet at the end of that first half of Mark in chapter, um, 
in chapter 8, verse 21, people are still confused. Particularly the disciples, which is actually shocking. Mark actually uses quite a bit of irony. And part of that irony is that the disciples and those who are closest to him are still very confused. And so in Mark 8, 21, Jesus is frustrated and says, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? After, after you know, and this is kind of Mark asking us the same question. After seven chapters of me showing you the authority of Jesus, do you not yet understand who Jesus is? Do you not, do you not yet understand what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God? And Mark, by the way, this is just a side note, but Mark, by the way, he is the one gospel writer that features or that shows uh, a lot of Jesus's human traits. He shows them a lot more openly than, than some of the other gospel writers. And so oftentimes in the book of Mark, we're going to see Jesus expressing frustration or sadness or things like that. Um, but anyway, the point here is that the disciples are confused. They still don't know what exactly does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? And so what seems to be the problem? Why are the disciples not getting it? Well, then we get to the middle of the book. We get to that, you know, like I was saying in this Mark and Sandwich, we get to the middle of the story. We get to the meat of the book and, and kind of what explains the, the, the book for us. And we get to a really, really interesting story. It is a healing of a blind man in Bethsaida. And one of the things that Mark does with many of the miracles of Jesus is that he is arranging the, the book and the events in such a way that oftentimes the miracle that he tells us helps us understand the next story that he is going to, uh, uh, to write about. So he writes about a miracle. And the miracle, it's obviously, you know, it, it should bring us to awe and, and, and it should bring us to faith in Jesus. But Mark is actually thinking about these things and saying, well, this miracle could actually help illustrate this story that I'm about to tell about Jesus. And so in chapter 8, verse 22, we see a very, very interesting story. Dare I say weird kind of healing? So let me read it. In Mark 8, 22, and they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hand on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. So, you know, we have this story, we have this healing, and, you know, it kind of leaves us pondering, like, why did Jesus heal him in stages? Why is it that, First, he, he didn't see clearly. First, he just saw, he saw people, but he didn't see them as, as, actually, as actual people, but he saw them as trees, right? His vision was blurry. 
And then there is this second uh, intervention, and now he is able to see clearly. And then immediately after that, Mark tells us that Jesus went with his disciples, verse 27, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others said, Elijah, and others said, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell uh, or to tell no one about him. And so in this particular case, Peter and the disciples, they, they see they see that Jesus is the Christ, but then the very next portion is going to show that their vision was still blurry. The very next portion is going to show us that they didn't quite understand what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. Look in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so what was the problem here? They understood that Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't quite know exactly what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. For them, for Jesus to be the Messiah, they were thinking of the Son of Man in Daniel 7. They were thinking of this Son of Man that would come down and would receive the kingdom from God and would defeat the Roman Empire and would finally set them free and would establish His kingdom there on Israel. And that's what they wanted. That's what everyone wanted at that time. But when Jesus tells them, no, actually, me being the Messiah means that I'm going to be rejected that I'm going to suffer, that I am going to die. Peter and the other disciples, well, in this case, Peter particularly, rebukes Jesus, showing that he doesn't understand. His vision is still blurry. And so after after this middle section of the entire book, the second half of the book is now going to show us the full picture. The second half of the book is now going to show us what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And so in this second half of the book, everything turns toward Jerusalem. In the first half of the book, Jesus is kind of circling in the, uh, around the, the Sea of Galilee. In the first section of the book, Jesus is performing miracles here and there and teaching here and there. But after this section in chapter 8, the second half turns to Jesus going to Jerusalem because he is going to tell them, he is going to show them what it means for him to be the Messiah, what it means for him to suffer, to be rejected. And he actually tells them in the second half of the book, he tells them multiple times about his death. And every single time they are still confused. They still don't get it. He tells them, I am going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I am going to be killed. And they still do not get it. But that's 
I, th- I think that's the point. I think that's the point that we are seeing here and the, and the thing that Mark is really highlighting for us. And he is, he is writing this gospel so that by the end of this gospel, any of us who is still confused would join the disciples, would join the, the Roman centurion, would, would join the other people in this, in this gospel who displayed faith in Jesus and believed in him as the son of God. What Mark is helping us bring into focus is that, you know, kind of like the, the finger thing that we did, they were seeing two different sides of Jesus, right? Jesus as the conquering warrior, Jesus as the son of man. Actually, they were only seeing one. They were seeing that side, but they were missing the side of Jesus' suffering. Jesus going to the cross, Jesus dying on behalf of the people. And what Mark is helping us do is bring those into focus to see that Jesus, the son of God, yes, he is the conquering warrior. He is the conquering king. He is a lion, but he is also the one who gives his life as a ransom for many. In the second half of of the book, The the disciples have an argument about who among them is the greatest. I believe this is in chapter 10. James and John are arguing because they want to be seated at his right hand and at his left hand. And at the end of this section, Jesus says, In verse 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What Mark is helping us see is that Jesus, even the son of man, he came not to be served, but he came to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Everything in this gospel is pointing to the cross. Everything in this, in this gospel is pointing to Jesus, the son of man, giving his life as a ransom for many. And I believe that this message is so, so relevant for us today. And one of the reasons why I believe that this message is so relevant for us today is that, you know, when we think about the disciples and think about their confusion, sometimes we can, uh, I don't know, just kind of, Think of them as, oh, you know, how, how dumb, how could they be so confused? But I think there's confusion about who Jesus is today. I think there is a lot of confusion about who he is. And so one of the things that I'm excited about this gospel is that we're going to get a clear picture of Jesus. We're going to see who the real Jesus is. But one of the things in particular in terms of this, you know, the authority of Jesus is that I think that sometimes it is tempting to see Jesus and to see Christianity as this kind of worldly or or earthly power, as this, you know, if, if Jesus truly is the Messiah, then it means that we should have power in this earth. But I think when we look at this gospel, when we see the teachings that Jesus is giving his disciples and telling them, no, the son didn't come to be served. So yeah, did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. I think that that should 
challenge the way that we view Christianity, the way that we view power, the way that we engage with culture. If we truly are disciples of Jesus, if we truly believe that he is Lord, then we need to follow him in his suffering, in his servanthood, in his love, in his sacrifice. The book actually ends on a kind of a weird note. Um, as, As I was reading about Mark, one of the things that I read is that kind of in the early stages of of church history, um, many people didn't think that Mark was that great of a gospel. They really favored the the other three. They favored Matthew, Luke, and John. And they thought that Mark was probably just, you know, he probably just copied one of them and, and just put a very simple version of the gospel. It wasn't until later that they realized that Mark was actually the source of the other three. They, they, did, they realized later that Mark was actually written earlier than, than the other three gospels. And so all of a sudden, people started looking at the gospel of Mark more, you know, with more excitement. And one of the things about the book of Mark is that, as I mentioned before, people are just often confused in the gospel of Mark. People are afraid, people are confused, and, and, and it is no exception at the end of the book. So if you go to Mark chapter 16, verse 1, when we read the resurrection account, it says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought peace, uh, yeah, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, They went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that's the end of the book. And so, of course, you should have a note on your Bibles that says that verses 9 through 20 was, was not found in the earliest manuscripts. It was found in later manuscripts. And so basically the explanation for this is that some of the scribes that were copying the book of Mark, they saw the, the ending. They thought, this is such a weird ending. What do you mean they were afraid? And that's it. Like, that's how the book ends. And so they, you know, they said, well, you know, let's, add a few things here, not necessarily anything, you know, heretical or any, anything of the sort, but they just felt like they needed to complete the book. But I actually believe that Mark is a master storyteller. I actually believe that he is intentionally showing people being afraid, people being confused, 
And I think that in a sense, he is challenging us, the readers, he is challenging us and, and, and asking, what are you going to do with this information? The book ends with, with these women, they're trembling, they're afraid, and they just seemingly don't do anything. And I think partly what's happening here is that they have just come to the realization that Jesus truly is the son of God. What is happening here is that before Jesus' death, they believed that he was the son of God. But then he died, and so that kind of takes your hope away, right? Jesus, the one that you thought was the Messiah, the one that you thought that was gonna bring the kingdom, the one that you thought that was going to defeat your enemies, he died. And so now you're confused and afraid and you don't know what's going on. But then you go to the tomb and you find an angel and the angel tells you he is alive. Of course you're going to be scared, but this is a different kind of fear, right? This is a fear of, wow, it's true. It's true. He is the son of man. He is the son of God. He is who he said he was. And so, of course, they were afraid. We know that eventually, because we have the other gospel accounts, we know that eventually they went and they told the disciples. But here, the point is the realization that he truly is the son of God. And I think the question for us, the readers, is what about you, dear reader? Do you believe that he is the son of God? Do you see it? Do you see clearly what it means for Jesus to be the son of God, for him to be the, the, the son of man, but also the servant of God, the suffering servant that gives his life as a ransom for many? And I think the question, the implicit question for you and I is, what are you going to do with that information? What are you going to do with it? And I believe that the answer to that question is, you know, it's found throughout the book of Mark. We see people uh, trusting in Jesus. We see people declaring who he is. We see people telling everyone about what he has done for them. But I think that if we go back to chapter eight, to the heart of the book of Mark, we find the answer to, to that question. What are we gonna do about Jesus being the son of God? And basically the answer is that when we see that Jesus is the son of God and when we truly understand what it means for him to be the son of God, we must follow him. We must give up our, our lives. We must give up to ourselves and we must follow him. In chapter eight, verse 34 we read, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So if Jesus truly is the Son of God, if he really is the one who died for our sins, if he really is the one who gave his life for us, then the only rational response is to follow him. The only rational response is to devote our lives to him, not just follow him casually, but actually deny ourselves. Say no to ourselves, say no to our desires. Basically say, I am dead to myself and I want to devote my life to him. It sounds, it sounds radical. It is very radical. But when you think about it, there is no other logical response. If you truly believe that Jesus is Lord, if you truly believe that he is the son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is ushering in the kingdom of God, that he gave his life to bring us into the kingdom of God, then there is no other response. You're either all the way in or you're out. And so I truly believe that even though, yes, this is radical, it is the only appropriate response to who Jesus is to devote our lives to his service, to stop trying to save your life and to gain it by losing it for his sake and for his gospel, for his kingdom. And let me give you a little bit of encouragement here. Even if you don't fully understand what it means for Jesus to be the son of God, still follow him. The disciples for 95% of the book did not understand what it meant for Jesus to be the son of God and they were still following him, right? Oftentimes it's easy to, you know, kind of make fun of the disciples and when John and James make their request about sitting at the right hand and the left hand of God, it's like, oh, silly guys, you know, they don't get it. Or when Peter says, when Peter rebukes Jesus, oh, Peter, he doesn't get it. But if there's anything commendable about the disciples is that they stuck around, is that they actually followed Jesus. They followed Jesus when they had way less information than you and I have. You and I have four gospels. You and I have all of this where we have a clear explanation of who Jesus is. And so even if you don't get it, even if you're not fully sure yet, you should still follow Jesus. And you will, your vision will become clearer and clearer along the way. And, and my hope, my prayer is that as we look at, at the gospel of Mark, that we will get even clearer vision of who Jesus is, that we will learn who he is, that we will worship him for who he is, and that we would deny ourselves, that we would give up our lives in order to gain him. I want to close by reading Philippians chapter three. By the way, Mark and the apostle Paul, they were 
co-laborers. They were, um, we don't have enough information to know how close they were, but we have enough information to know that at some point they worked together. And so I'm sure that at some point they exchanged notes. But anyway, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, we read the declaration of someone who decided to give up his life and follow Jesus. Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Jesus. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. My prayer is that all of us would say with Paul, everything else is rubbish. I don't care about anything else as long as I may gain Christ and be found in him. He is everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to see you clearly. We want to know you for who you are. We want to grow in our knowledge, our understanding of you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you gave your life on the cross for us. Thank you that you not only brought the kingdom of God but also made it possible for us to enter that kingdom. Thank you for not serving yourself, but serving us and giving your life as a ransom for us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.